Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our discussion of Jupiter the Destroyer. Uh, in the last episode, we ended up talking about some of the myths of Zeus and Jupiter, Zeus's war against the Titans, and how that related to some ideas in astrophysics about how an early forming Jupiter in the solar nebula of our, of our young solar system may have played a very important role in the destruction of early forming super-Earths in the inner solar system, leading to or clearing the way for the eventual creation of rocky planets like the Earth we live on today. So that last episode was kind of it was kind of a mashup. We had we had some planetary science, uh, we had some mythology. It's like we had two turntables and uh, and we had uh, two different records and we kind of mixed and, and mashed them both. Uh, so we're we're kind of like your DJs. We're, well, we're we're your hosts. Except no substitutes. Uh, and we're going to have more of the same in this episode. We're going to have uh, plenty of planetary science, but we're also going to have mythology. So uh, if you love both, stay tuned because uh, you're going to get everything you love. Uh, if you lean more towards one direction or the other, well, it's still uh, hang on because we're going to take you on a ride. But if you're only interested in when we talk about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies, <laughs> I mean, stick around anyway because who knows what will come up. Well, that, that movie also is astronomical in its own ways. That's true. Uh, so maybe I, I thought we should start just by doing a brief refresher on one of the studies we talked about in the last episode, because it kind of ties into some of the stuff I'm going to talk about right after. Um, so one of the studies we looked at last time was published in 2015 in PNAS, and it was by Constantine Batigan and Greg Laughlin. And it's called Jupiter's Decisive Role in the Inner Solar System's Early Evolution. And the rough outline uh, is that the authors here argue that they put together a simulation that assumes a version of what's known as the Grand Tack scenario. And that's where in the uh, early solar nebula, so when the solar system is first forming, it's this big disk of gas and dust all swirling around this newly forming sun. Uh, when that's going on, a young Jupiter migrated from somewhere around five astronomical units out in radius from the sun into about 1.5 astronomical units and then reversed course and went back out to a larger orbital radius when it was pulled outward by the gravitational influence of Saturn. And the authors here write, quote, We propose that the primordial nebula-driven process responsible for retention of Jupiter and Saturn at large orbital radii and sculpting Mars' low mass is also responsible for clearing out the solar system's innermost region. So uh, like we talked about last time, this would be wiping out these early forming super-Earths or mini-Neptunes that were forming near the Sun and thus making room and freeing up some materials for rocky planets planets like Earth and Venus to form. And if you remember the details we talked about last time, this would have happened, uh, according to these authors here, via a what, what they call a collisional cascade. So Jupiter's inward migration would hurl all of these planetesimals into um, what they call mean motion resonances, low-order mean motion resonances, shepherding and exciting their orbits. So basically just causing chaos in the inner solar system where things would smash into each other and then ultimately spiral into the sun and be vaporized 
is down there in the bottom of the solar system. And then finally, they write, in this scenario, the solar system's terrestrial planets formed from the gas-starved, mass-depleted debris that remained after the primary period of dynamical evolution. So under this scenario, it is the gravitational influence from a coalescing Saturn that finally pulls Jupiter back out of the fray, back into the outer solar system. Uh, but I wanted to think about another way that gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn, or like uh, if you imagine another solar system somewhere else in the galaxy, multiple Jupiters can interact with one another in catastrophic ways that have major influence on the other planets in that star system. Because going to the mythological analogy, one Zeus or one Jupiter is bad enough. If you got a couple, you're really running into trouble. Well, they're not going to tolerate each other. That's right, though it is funny that literally in our solar system, uh, if you look at the mythological counterparts of the three, the first three outer planets you get to after the asteroid belt, you got Jupiter, you got Saturn, and then you got Uranus. And if you look at their mythological counterparts, each one ascending out there is the, the father of the other who was mm -hmm. defeated by the sun. So Jupiter or Zeus uh, defeated Cronus, which is Saturn, uh, and dethroned him, threw him into Tartarus. But Cronus previously, the Titan, had defeated Uranus or Uranus uh, by castrating him and throwing his genitals into the ocean. Yeah, so like if you've been dethroned, you get pushed further out of the solar hierarchy. Yeah, I guess so. Now, now that's an interesting question. Which is more like Tartarus, being cast into the sun like these early super-Earths may have been, or being cast farther out into a greater orbital radius where you're, you're very cold and very lonely? I guess I'd go with the cold and lonely uh, interpretation more. Uh, again, just in terms of thinking about <laughs> what uh, you know, mythological punishments would be like. Uh, I, I tend to imagine uh, the prison of the Titans as being cold and lonesome. Uh, but anyway, I, I wanted to uh, now now talk about the idea of Jupiter's going eccentric. And uh, usually the word eccentric, how do we use that? We, we use the word eccentric to mean uh, weird, but in kind of a harmless way, like it's the nice version of weird. Yeah, uh, or, the, or the, at least the rich version of weird, right? Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you mean by that. But no, in this case, this would be uh, eccentric in a way that is that is not at all harmless and potentially could be world-ending. Uh, so I wanted to look at a blog post by an American astrophysicist living in France named Sean Raymond, who uh, I wanted to bring this up because uh, I think reading his blog on his website was one of the reasons I ended up wanting to do this pair of episodes about Jupiter. Uh, I, I was originally reading his website because he was one of the authors of a study about moons of moons that I talked about for an episode of The Artifact, uh, mm -hmm. where I was saying, like, like, how many levels of orbits can you go down? You know, the, the, so the, our, our sun orbits the center of the Milky Way galaxy, and then the Earth orbits the sun, and then the moon orbits the Earth. But could the moon have its own moon? And it turns out the answer is yes. There's nothing in physics that prevents moons from having moons. But of course, uh, every, every step you go down that ladder of orbits within orbits, the maximum size of the orbiting object gets smaller and smaller. And if you include really small stuff, I think moons of moons can have moons. 
But anyway, through that, I ended up reading some posts on this guy's website. Uh, so he, he's a professor of astrophysics at the University of Bordeaux in France. And uh, his blog is fun. He, he, he sometimes like writes poems about astrophysics and does weird stuff <laughs> on there. Uh, but there was this one post that I thought was really interesting and got me thinking about this topic and reading other stuff about it. And it was a, a post called uh, How Planets Die When Good Jupiters Go Bad. And the gist of this uh, post here is about how planets like Jupiter have the potential to destroy the solar systems that they dwell within. And in other planetary systems around other stars in the galaxy, there is evidence that gas giants like Jupiter have indeed already destroyed other planets in, in their solar systems. Uh, now, of course, as we talked about in the last episode, Jupiter is the largest planet in our solar system. It's uh, more than 300 times more massive than Earth. What was it? It was like 317 times as massive as Earth or something. Uh, I mean, it's ju just huge. And of course, the sun is the largest gravitational influence in our solar system. But Jupiter is second in that regard. And Jupiter has more effects on what happens to the rest of the objects in the solar system than you might imagine. Raymond talks about some stuff that we didn't really get into in the last episode. Like one of the things he mentions is that Jupiter probably would have blocked large icy bodies from the outer solar system from invading the inner solar system when the solar system was first forming. Uh, it would have cleared this large gap in the solar nebula disk that was forming around the early sun. Uh, and with its gravity, it would prevent large icy objects from migrating inwards. Of course, we already talked about that uh, Batygin and Laughlin idea that uh, if it's correct during Jupiter's grand tack or the movement in and then out again, uh, it would have had these catastrophic implications for early forming super Earths or mini Neptunes close to the sun through this collisional cascade uh, and would have allowed small rocky planets like Earth to take shape in the aftermath. But Jupiter also, we should remember, and this is one one thing we're going to look at in several different ways today, Jupiter plays a major role in influencing what kinds of space objects crash into Earth and at what rate and at what velocity. Uh, because to read from Raymond here, quote, Jupiter's gravity determines how comets enter the inner solar system and how long they spend near the planets with the potential to crash into Earth before launching them into interstellar space. And this has implications both ways. So it means that Jupiter can act as a kind of destroyer, flinging objects in our direction in a dangerous way. But Jupiter can also act as a kind of protector, shepherding objects away from Earth and keeping us safe. And so Jupiter's effect on the movements of space objects in the inner solar system, like asteroids and especially comets, I think, will have powerful effects on things like the water contents of Earth and the biological development of Earth, which we'll come back to as we go on. But uh, coming back to the idea of eccentric Jupiters, now I mentioned in the last episode that sometimes when we look out at other stars in our galaxy, we can see that they have large exoplanets, large gas giants in very eccentric orbits. The orbits of most of the planets in our solar system are nearly circular. They're not perfectly circular, but they're pretty close. I mean, you know, roughly circular. If you look at the orbit of some comets, though, it is a completely different story. There are comets that orbit the sun in these incredibly squashed, squeezed-out oval trajectories. Uh, and these orbits that deviate from near circularity are called eccentric. And of course, the, the more squashed out they get, the more highly eccentric they are. 
So if you're trying to picture it, you can think of a, a more eccentric orbit is like a rubber band being stretched out instead of allowed to just like sit slack in a circle. And in fact, exoplanet research reveals that around other stars in the galaxy, there are gas giants like Jupiter that have orbits more like these comets. So imagine a Jupiter or a Saturn with a highly eccentric orbit, more like a stretched out rubber band. These, these types of planets exist. And the question is, well, how does that happen? Well, Raymond discusses one way. When gas giants act upon one another in dangerous ways... So large gas giants exert gravitational influence, not only on comets, not only on uh, the moons that orbit them, but also on one another. You know, if you have like two Jupiters orbiting a star, they will have influence on the paths that they each take. Uh, remember, think again about the way that uh, Saturn may have pulled Jupiter back out of the inner solar system, according to the Grand Tack hypothesis. So if you have two gas giants that are affecting one another gravitationally, it can throw their orbits off course. And sometimes these uh, gravitational interactions can even put them into orbital patterns uh, such that one gas giant gets gravitationally ejected out of the solar system by the gravitational influence of the other. Like it does sort of a gravity slingshot like we might do with a with one of our space probes, but on a planet and just like throws it way out of there. And then the other one remains, but in this stretched out eccentric orbit. And as you might well imagine, these gravitational disturbances in the orbits of gas giants can have horrible effects on the planets nearby. So if there are Earth-like inner planets in one of these scenarios, they tend to get cast into the pit of Tartarus. Uh, mm -hmm. And this could actually – this could be either of the Tartarus scenarios we were talking about earlier uh, in, in the closest thing to a literal sense, right? They either get cast way out into nowhere, into space, or they get thrown into the sun or destroyed by collisions, possibly with gas giants themselves or with other rocky planets or planetesimals. And then those uh, the, the debris from those collisions can spiral into the sun or they get ejected and then just plunge forever into the void. Yeah, it's the thing about theomachies. They tend to uh, they tend to throw out the old order and replace it with something new. You know, this reminds me of one of the possible explanations for Oumuamua, that uh, object, mm -hmm. interstellar object that we did a couple of episodes about. Uh, that some people, I think, probably very prematurely were trying to say was an alien probe. I don't think there's good evidence of that. But one of the ideas about what this object probably is, because it had strange characteristics, like it's kind of elongated and seemed to be moving in a kind of tumbling motion. One of the ideas is that it is part of a, an object that was destroyed or ejected from its host star system by a gravitational disturbance like this. Hmm. Now, most of the time when a Jupiter turns murderous, when, when Jupiter, uh, you know, when, when his hand flashes with power, as it says in the, in Hesiod's Theogony, um, when a gas giant goes rogue and destroys the other planets, most of the time it happens early in the formation of the solar system, shortly after most of the material in the nebula disk is dissipated and absorbed by newly forming planets. And the reasoning here is that without the stabilizing presence of this cloud-like disk, a Jupiter-like planet can start going off the rails very quickly. 
But sometimes a gas giant can turn into the destroyer. Its hand can flash with power later in its lifespan. For example, if its orbit is disturbed by external influence, an example here could be another star passes too close to the solar system, and this uh, this causes gravitational disturbances, throws the orbit of the Jupiter-like planet off course, and then the same thing happens. It just it starts this cascading series of effects on the orbits of other planets, and you know many of these inner rocky planets are just destroyed. They're they're sent down into the sun. Well, you know, if we're to, to, to draw in a comparison to maybe not literal, the literal mythology, but just sort of the nature of mythologies and belief, I'm, I'm reminded of what happens when a, a foreign um, a religion or a foreign deity uh, comes too close to an established religion and deity. You know, it can mm. also result in a fair amount of disorder uh, and a realigning of the order of things. Yes, uh, the realignment of a pantheon in the presence of a syncretism, right? When you yeah. merge two religions together, if you merge two two stars' gravities too close to one another, this can definitely realign things and possibly result in a monotheism. Yeah, more on that in a bit. So yeah, I, I, I do want to be clear. Uh, we're not saying there's any reason to think that this is likely to happen to our solar system anytime soon. Like the, the, that That's not the implication here. But it is scary to imagine that it does sometimes happen around other stars, and it at least is possible in theory that uh, you, know, you can have this influence from some kind of external object, another star passes too close or something. This can nudge the orbit of a previously pretty stable Jupiter-like planet, leading to a cascade of effects like we just talked about, and then the Earth-like planets have an appointment with the Wicker Man. <laughs> And uh, one interesting thing that Raymond mentions in this blog post is he does some rough calculations and guesses that about half of the stars in the Milky Way galaxy with gas planets have annihilated their rocky planets through a process like this. Now, remember that it's much more likely for it to happen early during formation uh, when when the disk is, is first uh, sorting itself out. But it can, in some rare cases, happen later. And I guess this all comes down to the fact that we have a Jupiter and we still exist. So it looks like in, in some sense we're one of the lucky ones. But it's also true that the influence of Jupiter or gas giants in general, especially Jupiter in our case, uh, doesn't stop there. I mean, the influence on Jupiter on the history of the planet Earth appears to be pervasive, uh, I, I was looking at one study by uh, Elisa V. Quintana, Thomas Barclay, William J. Baruki, Jason F. Rowe, and Johnny Chambers from the Astrophysical Journal 2016 called The Frequency of Giant Impacts on Earth-Like Worlds. And uh, I, was, I was reading some write-ups of this, and basically these researchers did some simulations of what happens in different types of solar system configurations where you have a Jupiter present or where you don't have a Jupiter present, where you have multiple Jupiters. And their simulations revealed that in general, gas giants like Jupiter have complicated effects on rocky inner planets like Earth. So uh, young Jupiter, they think, probably flung material into the cores of newly forming rocky planets when the solar system was young. And this would have helped planets like Earth come together faster than rocky planets in a solar system without a nearby gas giant. Uh, but at the same time, by hoarding materials to themselves, gas giants limit the number of rocky planets that form around a star. So if you have a star without a planet like Jupiter, it can have way more rocky planets out there. 
Um, and then if you don't have any nearby gas giants, young rocky planets are subjected to a much longer period of early bombardment where they're just constantly being hit with impacts from space uh, by smaller objects from the solar nebula cloud. And a planet like Jupiter makes that cloud disappear faster and thus makes the early bombardment period last a, a shorter span of time. But then again, you can also look at ways that the, a planet like Jupiter ends up accelerating larger objects like comets into the inner solar system and controlling how long they stay there in the inner solar system. Uh, and of course, those things can lead to impacts later on down the line that affect Earth life. So Jupiter is, once again, sort of protecting and attacking in tandem. <laughs> yeah, I guess the relationships between um, humans and, and gods, they, they tend to be a little bit unhealthy. Uh, but then again, I mean, there there are reasons. I guess what we've gone through here kind of, uh, you know, justifies the ways of God to man uh, to some extent. Well, Rob, I don't know about you, but I am ready to mount an apologia for Jupiter Pluvius. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Let's let's talk uh, Jupiter the God a, a bit more. Um, again, I think this comparison between planet Jupiter and the god Jupiter is is increasingly apt the more you look at it. Uh, and in, in this episode, we're talking a good deal. I mean, we're still talking about Jupiter the destroyer and Jupiter um, uh, of, of of passionate uh, lashing out against uh, humanity. But uh, but also Jupiter, the protector, Jupiter, the lord of Earth, uh, because he enforces his order upon it. And he is in many ways its protector. And he was also expressly stated to be the protector of the Roman state. The white ox was his favorite sacrifice, and it could afford an entire year's protection uh, from uh, uh, the, the lord of the, the gods. Uh, and he probably took this sort of thing seriously, seeing as how he was also the god of oaths and treaties. He's kind of a rules guy. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he he's lawful. Whatever else he is, he's he's lawful. Uh, so I was... Uh, <laughs> well, maybe he's the emblem of lawfulness to others. I don't know. Does he have to follow the laws himself? Well, I mean, he's... It, he's in a, you're in a tough spot. Like, if you, you can't... Who are you going to report him to, right? Right. Uh, I, I was reading uh, the imperial ideology of Rome and the principalities and powers in, in Romans uh, eight. 31 through 39 by Sung Cho Hong in Scripture and Interpretation from 2008. And Hong points out that imperial Roman propaganda expressly stated that the safety of the entire human race lay in the hands of mighty Jupiter. And this was a point pressed by uh, Cicero, among others. Uh, and I believe, uh, yeah, in, in uh, particularly in On the Ends of Good and Evil. Mm. Uh, I want to read a quote here from it. Uh, and this is not uh, I want to stress that uh, Cicero goes into a lot more detail about all this, and he's he's crafting a much greater point uh, than this. This is just a fragment, but uh, he does uh, write, or he does uh, say, quote, When we call Jupiter all-powerful and all-good, and likewise when we speak of him as the salutary god, the hospitable god, or as stator, we mean it to be understood that the safety of men is under his protection. This reminds me of like uh, when when presidents of the United States will say like uh, the president's first responsibility is to keep America safe. This seems like a very close analogy. It's just like, first of all, I am I am the daddy and it is it is all protection from me. Yeah. So th this seems to be, uh, again, Cicero is saying all other things in this work. Uh, I mean, additional things. But this seems to be like a, a major talking point for just Roman propaganda in general. 
But so there's a thing that's kind of interesting about Jupiter that I think we would recognize as common, say, in uh, like Indian religion, uh, that gods can have multiple manifestations or faces. Yeah, it's true. The Romans didn't exactly have one Jupiter. They had multiple aspects of Jupiter. Now, sometimes these are referred to more as uh, as epithets, you know, just, uh, just different descriptions uh, of, of Jupiter. But ultimately, I think the line between the two, you know, you can see where it enters a gray area. Like if you're just describing different properties of the same being, you know, it's, it's only a short hop and a jump to having different uh, – D- different, uh, you know, beings entirely. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, in the Christian tradition, you see, you, you see some of this, right? Because on, on one hand, you it's what you can talk about, like God the Father, and you can talk about like different divisions of the same being. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you see throughout, uh, you know, Christian history, a um, a tendency to want to say focus on say the the, the feminine aspects of Christ uh, in. You know, certainly in in visual representation, but also then embodying different ideas of what Christ was, and then that may be um, stamped down uh, out of fear of heresy. The idea that if, if people keep going in this direction, it will butt off into an alternative Jesus. So you, you can you can tell how how this sort of thing can lead to d- division. Um, even at the same time, it's kind of like saying, okay, we have all of these. Instead of having just a dozen gods, we could have maybe have um, we could you know still have other gods, but we could also have just like a dozen different versions or different um, incarnations of the same being, and that's kind of what you see with Jupiter here. Yeah, the Romans had an idea of. Uh what we now call superstition, you know, that comes from a Roman idea, meaning basically being too religious, because Mm -hmm. picking up off what you were just saying, there is a pattern, I think, throughout uh, the religions of the world where when people get incredibly invested in their religion, like very passionate about it, they are prone more often to to religious innovation. And religious innovation can lead to, you know, you start really focusing on maybe one aspect of an existing god or something, maybe that becomes a new god, and then you've got a new cult, and that that new cult could maybe undermine things that came before. Now, there was in the Roman Empire, while the Romans were incredibly tyrannical, there was a kind of weird religious pluralism there, where there there could, you know, you could have a lot of different kinds of religious beliefs in the Roman Empire, and it would be mostly okay as long as you weren't causing trouble uh, but there's always, I think, a, a certain fear of religious innovation stemming from too much interpretive interest in the nature of gods and religious matters among the existing religious authorities. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so, so I know as I was reading all this, it 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 didn't it did raise an interesting question for me. Like, given all these different aspects of Jupiter, and I'll get into what they are here in a, in a minute. Uh, you know, the fact that Jupiter had his own priests, and that Romans tended toward uh, syncretism, which we already uh, mentioned. This is the combining of different theological ideas. Like, instead of hearing about a new god, uh, for instance, in a territory that you have absorbed into your empire, instead of saying, "Okay, that god's out." Wait, whatever you're doing with that God, uh, forget it. Instead saying, well, actually, that God is part of our pantheon, yeah. or that God is actually Jupiter, that sort of thing. Well, I mean, God, look at the way that the Romans essentially just adopted almost wholesale, originally, the mythology of the Greeks. Yeah. So so given given this, and, and given the, the situation with the different aspects of Jupiter, um, I, I was wondering, do, do we see in this at least a movement toward monotheism? Because that, of course, is one of the, the things about the Roman Empire is that it eventually it becomes a, a Christian empire. There's this movement towards monotheistic Christian uh, belief. 
Well, I don't know if this helps with the point you're developing, but the uh, but the secular biblical historian Bart Ehrman, who's a previous guest on the show, mm-hmm. he was on the show last year, he, he's got a book about uh, why Christianity eventually overtook the Roman Empire. And, uh, and his theory on that, which seems very reasonable to me, is that the main thing going for Christianity is that unlike all of the other religions in the Roman Empire at the time, or most of the other religions – in the Roman Empire at the time, Christianity was evangelical and it was exclusive. So they were trying to convert mm-hmm. people to it. And unlike the existing Roman religions, you couldn't add other gods into Christianity or you weren't supposed to. I mean, some people probably did. But mostly Christians were preaching that, no, once you're a Christian, you can only believe in Jesus and you have to forget all these other gods. And over time, those dynamics led to effects where Christianity would just grow and grow and it would push out because every new Christian wasn't just like a pagan adopting one additional god. But now, like, they weren't a pagan anymore. They You, you weren't allowed to keep your old gods as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think even though if we're looking at this, we're thinking, okay, you're, you're going to the, the temple that's just to Jupiter. You're worshiping Jupiter, maybe in different aspects, but you're, you're, you're pretty much focusing on him. Even if you did not worship any of the other gods in the Roman pantheon, that wouldn't be monotheism. That would be what is called henotheism, which is the adherence to one particular God out of many. So saying like, yeah, all these other gods, they're, they're fine. They exist, but this is my guy. This yeah. is my gal. Yeah, yeah and that, that was common in the Roman Empire, that you yeah. would believe in the other gods and you would maybe respect the other gods, but you might have like a personal favorite god who you were really devoted to. Yeah, like even in that work on Cicero that I was quoting earlier, um, he's, he's mentioning adherence to Jupiter, but he's also uh, in the same work mentioning adherence to smaller household gods. So, yeah, you can, you can see that if, if suddenly you're like, no, you can't keep, keep your household gods. You have to pretty much abandon the old way uh, and, and, and take to this new one. Uh, you know, you have to cut off the other gods from your life. I could see that being maybe something that keeps you from drifting back into another one. Sure. Like, like if you if you have to you get this new video game and you have to throw out all your other video games. Well, <laughs> if you get bored with the new one, you're not going to go back to the old ones because they're not in the house anymore. Okay, so you only got one game now. You get bored with it. What you start doing is looking for glitches in the game to exploit and start trying <laughs> to break the physics, uh, yep. which you could look at uh, for, in a religious point of view. You start maybe innovating how the religion works, thinking about uh, maybe I've received a new vision that tells me that the priests don't have it exactly right. This is the version. Yeah, yeah. New new fan theories about exactly what, what Mario means to the yeah. franchise, etc. Now, uh, I, was, I was looking around about at this, about this question of, of, um, of monotheism and polytheism in the Roman Empire. And uh, uh, there's a, an interesting sounding book. I don't know if you're familiar uh, with this author, but uh, it, came, it was by Stephen Mitchell, who uh, I think has done a lot of work in uh, religion and involved in some translations of various works, such as the, the Gita. Uh, but uh, he has this book called One God, Pagan Monotheism in the Roman Empire. And it discusses the complexity of the shift from polytheism to monotheism, but also yeah, it deals with this idea of quote, pagan monotheism. And apparently historians have, uh, some historians have considered the various Roman cults to be something we might interpret as monotheistic structures. Um, so th- this kind of thing might be worth a, a deeper dive in a later episode, because uh, it's a, apparently it's not a, a cut and dry issue. Rob, I was just trying to look up and figure out, I'm not quite sure the answer, if this is the same Stephen Mitchell who did one of my favorite poetry translations, a uh, translation of uh, Rainer Maria Rilke's Archaic Torso of Apollo into English. It's, uh, I don't know if you've ever read this, but his translation is the version that ends in English saying, uh, for here there is no place that does not see you, you must change your life. 
Oh wow! No, uh, I, I don't think I've read that, but but it, it might well be him. It looks like he's a, he was involved in a number of translations and adaptations, including like the Gita, but also like the Iliad. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, various uh, some Ch- some Chinese works in there. Um, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh. So there's a lot of stuff. Well, I'm not sure if it's the same Stephen Mitchell, but if so, that that's a good translation of that poem, Archaic Torso of Apollo. You can look up. Um, uh, so I, I didn't have time to, to really dig into this uh, One God book, but I just want to read a, a quick quote that I found in it from author Stephen Mitchell uh, on this topic. Quote, pagan polytheists did not individually become monotheists, but through philosophy and the comparing of religious ideas by adopting and inventing new cults and learning how to individualize and express religious experience. They transformed ancient religion into a terrain of human experience where much, including monotheism, was possible. Oh, that's interesting. Looking at uh, the possibility that a trend toward monotheism could actually emerge from the kind of commerce of religious ideas that you would have in a very Mm -hmm. uh, pluralistic multicultural empire. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, it kind of gets back to the point you were uh, were mentioning earlier. Uh, So let's get into some of these aspects of Jupiter, these different um, Jupiter sub-brands, if you will, uh, that were available uh, under the Roman Empire. Uh, So um, in addition to some of the sources I I mentioned already, uh, I was also looking at Aspects of Jupiter on Coins of the Roman Mint by Philip V. Hill. From This is from 1960. Uh, But this this particular article was one that dealt more exclusively with Aspects of Jupiter as represented on coins, Hmm. um, which is also uh, uh, pretty interesting. So Let's start with Jupiter Stator, who we mentioned earlier. That's that's who uh, Cicero is referring to. And this is he who stays panic in battle. Uh, this is uh, <laughs> this is Jupiter depicted with a scepter and a thunderbolt. And this is the Jupiter that gives you courage, that gives you resolve to not be crushed by fear. OK, so stays panic means like holds back panic, not like yeah. keeps you panicked. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Now, um, so so that's obviously a big one. You know, what, what, one of the reasons to appeal to a god is like for strength, right? Like, yeah. give me that strength. Give me the resolve to to not run away, especially if you're dealing with a, a, a warring empire. Likewise, along those lines, another big one was Jupiter Victor, the giver of victory depicted as seated and holding a statue of victory and a scepter or spear. This was especially prominent on coins, and it might be invoked, this version of Jupiter might be invoked to either celebrate uh, an actual victory that occurred or in anticipation of an upcoming victory. So this is Jupiter the Conqueror. Jupiter, what is best in life, right? (laughs) Yes. What, to uh, crush the Titans, see them driven before you, hear their lamentations from Tartarus? Yeah. But of course, uh, Jupiter, uh, I mean, presumably a god also has to govern, and certainly uh, the Roman Empire would have realized that as well. It's one thing to conquer, but then you need to hold your territory. And that's where the next aspect comes in, Jupiter Conservator. Uh, This is a a Jupiter that holds a thunderbolt, but he's holding it above the image of the Roman emperor. Uh, So he's kind of a preserver of rule. This is kind of a halo uh, concept, I think, you know, Mm. it's like saying... My, like the will of Jupiter resonates through the emperor, and he was the one who rules over these lands. Right. Uh, now, one of the big ones is Jupiter Optimus Maximus, or Jupiter Optimus Maximus uh, Capitolinus. And this is the most powerful aspect of Jupiter, all-powerful. Uh, as such, the temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus was the most important temple in ancient Rome, uh, located on Capitoline Hill. 
Now, some other versions, you had Jupiter Fulgore. This is uh, lightning Jupiter, but not passively so. Like, Jupiter often has lightning, but this is like Jupiter with the aggressive stance, like he's going to smite you. I'm going to hurl the thunderbolt. For some reason, when you said that, I pictured not Jupiter, but I guess uh, an analog to Jupiter, uh, Marduk, holding holding the yeah, divine Yeah, that's a, a famous image, yeah. Uh, but Marduk is often pictured in kind of a fighting stance from the side. Yeah. Uh, there's one that uh, was referred to as uh, Jupiter uh, Dolichinus, and this was uh, the focus of a Roman mystery cult, originally a local Hittite Hurrian god of fertility and thunder. So here we see an example of, uh, of, of, the, of Romans combining ideas. Another deity from another land is taken in and becomes an aspect of Jupiter. Then you have uh, Jupiter Ruminus. Uh, this is the breastfeeder of all life. And then, as we mentioned earlier, Jupiter uh, uh, Pluvius. This is the, the sender of rain. In times of drought, uh, special sacrifices were made in the name of Jupiter Pluvius, and these were called Aqualysium. Uh, so this is where we're getting back t- to consideration of not only the mythic Jupiter, but, but, the, but Jupiter, the planet as well. Uh, the idea of Jupiter as, as he who delivers the rain, he who delivers the water. Yeah, and so we already talked about some ways that Jupiter has uh, has influenced what kind of stuff smashed into the the forming and then the early Earth to determine its composition, what size it would grow to, and what was on its surface, and what kind of volatiles it had in terms of an atmosphere and possibly surface water. Yes, uh, and so. In this, I mean, we're still talking about the planet Jupiter pelting the rocky planets with stuff, you know, like it's it's still ultimately a violent uh, relationship. But uh, but uh, the idea here is that uh, as Jupiter is not only throwing thunderbolts, uh, the Jovian bombardments might have included water or would be water, specifically hydrogen rich material. And this winds up locked into Earth's crust and mantle and emerges later to bond with oxygen to become water. Uh, so one of the sources we're looking at with this is a Nola Taylor read article for Smithsonian.com from back in 2018, focusing on the work of French astronomer Sean Raymond, who we've already uh, talked about, uh, whose models predict this possible gas giant thrown delivery of water rich material to the inner planets. Also key is the work of Andre Isidoro, who, along with Raymond, published a paper on this in 2017 titled Origin of Water in the Inner Solar System. Okay, so what do they argue? Okay, so the idea here is that 4.5 billion years ago, the massive center of the, uh, and and in this I'm going to touch on some stuff we've already gone through, but uh, the the massive center of the cloud of gas and cosmic dust begins to form into a central star, our sun. But the remaining cloud remained, and its contents would in time form uh, into the planets. But the water-rich region of the disk would have been located several astronomical units away from the sun. The temperature in the inner region was too high. So that water then ultimately has to move back to the inner planets to become a part of them so that we can have water on Earth. So this would have occurred um, uh, during a 5 to 10 million year period between the sun's formation and uh, the dissipation of the gas disk. During this time, the gas giants formed and, quote, Jupiter's rapid growth gravitationally disturbed thousands of water-rich planetismals, dislodging them from their original orbits. Uh, okay, so we see yet again, uh, Jupiter, as it's coming together, begins to throw its weight around. It exerts gravitational influence, and in this case, would have started pulling in these uh, these 
planetesimals, these these objects, you know, objects that might be, I don't know, asteroid-sized or larger that have some kind of water or hydrogen content on them and then slamming them into the inner solar system. Right. It's it basically, you know what it reminds me of is, I don't know if you've seen these uh, sort of vaudevillian skits where like you have your, your, your bad comic, your sort of Fozzie Bear type, and he's on stage, he's bombing. I mean, he's just really dogging it up. Uh, and so the, the, the audience is, of course, pelting him with fruits and vegetables. Uh-huh. And he either catches one in, in his mouth and begins to eat it or catches something like catches a carrot and starts <laughs> eating it. So like they are, they are pelting and they're engaging in violence, uh-huh. but they're throwing nutrients at him and he is like, yes, I am hungry. I shall eat. That is, that's kind of the relationship going on here. Nice. Um, we, we, the Fozzie Bear effect, I'm going to call it. Uh, anyway, um, I was reading some more about this. Um, uh, uh, Isidoro uh, had, had provided some quotes about this that were used in press releases and uh, write-ups, and in particular one that was on EurekaAlert.com, and uh, this is what they said. Quote, in our own solar system, the model shows that ices from the outer solar system snowed down on the Earth in three waves. The first came as Jupiter swelled up, the second was triggered during Saturn's formation, and the third would have occurred when Uranus and Neptune migrated inward before being blocked by the other two and sent back to the outskirts of the solar system. Ah, and that ties into something that I was uh, talking about earlier when I was mentioning that blog post by Sean Raymond, one of the authors here, Mm -hmm. that the early forming Jupiter, and uh, I'm not sure if he's saying also maybe Saturn too, but at least definitely Jupiter and perhaps also Saturn would have prevented these icy bodies, Uranus and Neptune, from migrating inward toward the inner solar system and messing with the planets that were forming uh, down in closer to the sun. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, if you have an all-powerful god like Jupiter, one of the things that that they're supposed to do is keep keep his dreaded father and grandfather from uh, taking over creation again. Right. I mean, that's why we're putting up with all of this, right? (laughs) Right. Now, uh, one other neat thing about this that the authors point out is that, um, you know, it it might not just be a quirk of our own solar system. It might not just be the peculiar peculiar story of uh, of life on Earth and, and life in this system. This could be going on anywhere that you have both giant planets and terrestrial planets, um, so this is the sort of thing that if, if this is true, this would be another thing to look for in our exoplanet surveys. Mm. Look for situations where you have like the right proportions, the right arrangements of uh, gas giants and rocky inner planets where this same uh, bombardment of water could happen. Yeah, this is really interesting. And uh, and of course, in the specific case of Earth, it of course, goes without saying that we couldn't have life on Earth without uh, surface, you know, plenty of surface water on Earth. So, so this is something that, uh, if if this uh, model of the early solar system is correct, this would again be crucial to us being here at all. Yeah. Now, I've got another thing that, uh, again, a, an astrophysical theory that, if correct, would be crucial for us being here at all. Uh, and this would have more to do with the history of life on Earth. Once you've already got the rocky planet Earth and you've already got Earth life, what happens to shape the course of evolution on the surface of this planet? Well, there is a new paper published in uh, Nature Scientific Reports in 2021, so I think it was just out last month, it was in February of this year, by uh, Amir Siraj and Abraham Loeb, or Avi Loeb, called The Breakup of a Long-Period Comet as the Origin of the Dinosaur Extinction. 
Mm. Uh, and so I was briefly reading a, uh, a Harvard Gazette write-up of, of this study. I'm not going to go super in-depth about it, but basically what the authors argue here is that Jupiter's gravitational field influenced objects, uh, a comet probably originating from the Oort cloud. So that's way out there past the Kuiper belt, you know, this huge uh, sphere of icy objects way, way out in the distance beyond the orbit of Neptune, beyond the orbit of Pluto, beyond the Kuiper belt even, that Jupiter disturbed the orbit of one of these comets from the Oort cloud, and this disturbance of its orbit sent it really close to the sun, where tidal forces then broke the comet apart, and this would increase the rate of comets that would bombard the Earth, and these comets would include objects like the Chicxulub impact object, which uh, hit the Earth about 66 million years ago, and according to the leading theory today, is probably the main thing responsible for the extinction of the non-avian dinosaurs. And so Loeb and Siraj here argue that it is the gravitational influence of Jupiter that increases these kinds of impacts through the mechanism I just described. And uh, Siraj is quoted in this uh, Harvard Gazette piece where he says, quote, basically Jupiter acts as a kind of pinball machine. Jupiter kicks these incoming long period comets into orbits that bring them very close to the sun. When you have these sun grazers, it's not so much the melting that goes on, which is a pretty small fraction relative to the total mass, but the comet is so close to the sun that the part of it that's closer to the sun feels a stronger gravitational pull than the part that is farther from the sun, causing a tidal force. You get what's called a tidal disruption event, and so these large comets that come really close to the sun break up into smaller comets, and basically, on their way out, there's a statistical chance that these smaller comets hit the Earth. So huge icy objects from out in the Oort cloud getting diverted by the gravitational influence of Jupiter so that they pass really close to the sun. They sort of shatter as they do so because the, uh, the, the tidal forces from the sun are so strong. And then they turn into a kind of buckshot blast of huge icy objects in the inner solar system that can hit Earth and potentially cause mass extinctions. And I think one of the arguments that they also bring up is that the uh, is that it looks like the carbonaceous content of the object that caused the KPG extinction is more similar to stuff you're, you're likely to find in these uh, deep space Oort cloud objects than in things you're more likely to find closer to the inner solar system, like in the asteroid belt. So again, this is another argument that is based on simulations and statistical analysis. But if this is correct, it is yet another one of the many ways that Jupiter would be responsible for the fact that we exist at all. While it was you know, calamitous for the non-avian dinosaurs, it paved the way for the age of mammals. I like that if, uh, if, if this were true, if this is true, uh, we, we might need a, a new aspect for the god Jupiter, maybe uh, Jupiter Extinctor, god of <laughs> right. extinctions, you know? Yeah, very good. With uh, He could be shown holding a lizard in one hand and a thunderbolt in the other, like he's about to, like, smash it in his palm. Yeah. His hand flashes with power, but it's against a bunch of hadrosaurs. They're trying to guard their <laughs> eggs, and he's like, Argh! <laughs> Well, he was probably his thinking was probably look these 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 life forms they're not worshiping me now. Honestly, I don't think they're going to be worshiping worshiping me anytime soon, unless I really shake things up. I'm just going to smite the lot of them. Right. You know what I really like? I really like the look of that rat like creature down there. It's got yeah. a good twinkle in its eye. I think some some good things could happen if I give the rats a chance. <laughs> 
<laughs> Though it does make me wonder, you know, did I wonder if Jupiter slash Zeus got up to, uh, you know, his normal tricks? Did he go down and take the form of different uh, um, dinosaurs and mate with the dinosaurs to create like certain demigod dinosaurs that would have been just, you know, extra powerful uh, amid their dinosaur brethren? Uh, what would the dinosaur mythology version of the Minotaur be? Hmm. It'd be like a Tyrannosaurus Rex with the head of a Triceratops. I guess, but uh, but then again, I don't know. I, I feel like like remember the, the Minotaur is one of those beasts that's kind of born out of um, feuding with the gods and mm-hmm. disobeying the gods. I don't know. I guess the dinosaur just by refusing to worship or just not being capable of it. You know, the gods could have taken that the wrong way and dished out some punishment. But um, I don't know. Like this, I think this would be a rich area for. Um, I don't know, an action figure line or maybe a, a comic book like the 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 age of of uh, gods and dinosaurs. Um, what would that have been like? Also, I mean, if, if humans weren't even in the, the, the game yet, I guess uh, any form that that Jupiter took would be that of a dinosaur. So, like, would how would he appear? Would he appear as a as a great uh, T-Rex or some sort of enormous – I mean, he is a god of the sky. Maybe he takes the form of, a, of, a, of an enormous uh, uh, f- you know, flying reptile. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jupiter is Quetzalcoatlus. Oh, yeah. Oh, that would be fitting, especially since you know, we, humans found those bones and named it after a god. Yeah. Uh, so what, what better form for uh, the sky god to take? Well, Rob, I think we got to call it there, but this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, this has. I love uh, getting to, to switch back and forth between the planetary and the, the mythological. Uh, I should mention, however, we mostly speak of the Roman gods as figures of the past, just as we do with Greek deities and ancient Egyptian deities. But we should also mention that there are modern worshipers as well, not only of, um, of, of Greek deities and ancient Egyptian deities, but also of, of Roman Jupiter. Hmm. Um, you know, after all, just as modern humans reach for new models, entirely new models of religion, uh, you know, drawing things even out of uh, popular culture like Star Wars or the dude, we also reach uh, for the old ones and reconstructions of the old ones. Thus, we do see Roman polytheistic reconstructionism uh, in several different groups and forms. So um, uh, yeah, just always worth worth mentioning. I don't think we, we blasphemed too much in this regarding <laughs> Jupiter, but... Um, uh, at any rate, if, if anyone out there who's actively uh, involved in a religion uh, or some sort of spiritual movement that 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 reveres Jupiter, I would I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to know, you know, how do you think of Jupiter? How does how does this uh, material sit with you? Um, uh, so uh, yeah, I always find that kind of thing interesting. We have in the past heard from at least one listener who um, engages in uh, a religious model that incorporates Egyptian deities. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right. Well, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find them. Find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Uh, That is where core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays. That's the main show. That's the main event. Uh, But then we also have listener mail on Mondays. On Wednesdays, we do the artifact episodes unless they've been preempted for some reason. And then on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to just cut loose and discuss some weird movies. And then we run a little rerun over the week in the form of a vault episode huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.